If you didn't know he was responsible for 10 murders, you'd probably like him. At a towering six foot nine inches, most people thought of Ed as a gentle giant, a guy you'd want to grab a beer with, and lots of California cops bought him a round or two. With a genius level IQ of 145, he could talk about anything, but you didn't want to catch a ride with him. In the early 1970s, he murdered six girls hitchhiking around Santa Cruz, California. Awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides. This fantastic passion. Uh, It was overwhelming me. At 15, he killed his grandparents. Then he murdered the woman he says started it all his mother. He fantasized about leaving a trail of bodies across the United States. But I was losing a grasp on something that was too violent to keep inside forever. As I'm sitting there with a severed head in my hand, talking to it, or looking at it, and I'm about to go crazy, literally. I'm about to go completely flywheel loose and just fall apart. I say, wow, this is insane. And then I told myself, no, it isn't. You're saying that. And that makes it not insane. Ed couldn't understand or control the monster inside of him. So in April of 1973, he picked up the phone and turned himself in. Today, he's serving eight life sentences in the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. So what do you think of these quotes from his last parole hearing in 2017? When asked what he would do if he was released, God help us, Kemper replied, What would I do? What would I be telling people in the hallway? Hide. Head for the hills. He was referring to the expected media attention, but in all seriousness, he did tell the board that the people living in his mother's old apartment, the place where she and her friend were brutally murdered, apparently wrote to him and offered to let him live there with him should he ever get out. (laughs) Oh, boy. And when asked what he might do if he was back on the streets and came across a lone woman, he answered that he would go in the opposite direction rather than play with temptation. And finally, he was asked if he believed the community would be safe if he was released. And his answer, absolutely. But would I be? Today, we're talking about Edmund Emil Kemper III, otherwise known as Big Ed, the co-ed killer. I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. So before we get into what Ed did, let me tell you what he's most proud of. Until he had a minor stroke in 2015, he logged thousands of hours behind bars recording audiobooks for The Blind Project, including bestsellers like Flowers in the Attic, Star Wars, and Charlotte's Web. It was the children's books he liked reading best. In 1987, he told the LA Times, to be able to do something constructive for someone else, to be appreciated by so many people, the good feeling it gives me after what I have done, I can't begin to tell you what it's meant to me. Is that true remorse? Or as some doctors say, further proof, the man is a true sociopath with the instinctual ability to mimic typical human behavior and emotions. Whatever his motivation, there's a chance it could pay off when he comes up for parole again in 2024. I mean, a very slight chance. But no matter how ordinary he seems, and you'll hear much of his story in his own words today, but make no mistake, he should never be released. Let's pick up his story with his parents' separation and eventual divorce when he was about nine years old in 1957, Burbank, California. 
Oh, Ed was the middle child, sandwiched between sisters on both sides. His dad was a big man, and Ed was too, and he idolized his dad, Edmund Jr. He was a World War II vet. He's working as an electrician, but his mother took a dimmer view of her husband. Ed's earliest memories are of his parents fighting and his mother constantly belittling his father. The similarities between the husband she hated and her only son made him his mother, Clarnell's, favorite target. By the time he was 10, he was driving, simply because he was already as tall as a teenager and he was desperate to escape the house. When his father left for good, his mother moved him and his sisters to Montana where she remarried, but that second marriage didn't work out any better than her first. A succession of boyfriends followed, but no one stuck around too long. As the men in her life disappointed her over and over again, Clarnell directed all of her rage straight at Ed in shockingly cruel physical and psychological ways. She moved his bedroom down into the damp, dark basement, claiming his sisters were afraid of him because of his size. She locked him in for entire days sometimes with only rats for company he says. Now, he's quoted as saying it made him think he was in hell while they were in heaven. On her best days, he says she ridiculed and humiliated him, constantly referring to him as a real weirdo and telling him no one would ever love him. Saying I'd wanted to kill my mother since I was eight years old, and I'm not proud of that. It started with surrogates at a non-human level, physical objects, Mm -hmm. my possessions, other people's, destruction of things that are cared about, and then destruction of things that are living on a lower level, small animals, uh, insects, animals, and then finally people. But as the probation commissioner said, a lot of people have terrible childhoods and they don't go on to commit 10 murders, so... As a child, he and his sisters played games straight out of an episode of The Addams Family. His favorites were electric chair and gas chamber. The kids would take turns being strapped into a chair, then try to get loose before the gas got them or fake death by electrocution in the chair. A childhood spent watching the family's chickens be decapitated led to fantasies about doing the same to people. But he settled for decapitating and dismembering his sister's dolls. Of course, today, or at least in 2017, Ed claimed that that was just child's play. He was just getting his sisters back for breaking his own toys, so he cut off the heads and the hands of their Barbies. By the time he was 10, he graduated to animals. One time he buried a cat alive, then dug it up and cut its head off. He dismembered another animal and kept the pieces of its body in his closet until his mother found them and punished him. He was known to lurk outside of people's homes at night. By the time he was 14, his fantasies and his rage had become so strong, he was scared he'd act them out. So he ran back to California to live with his father and his new wife and son. But that proved to be yet another disappointment. So he moved in with his paternal grandparents in the mountains of North Fork, California. They lived on an extremely isolated property, about 45 miles from Fresno. But from his perspective, his grandmother, Maud, was just as abusive as his mother. Now, he said his grandfather, Edmund Sr., suffered from dementia, and his grandmother constantly mocked and belittled him for it, although close family members say the man was just hard of hearing. In any case, Ed had long ago developed an interest in guns, but now with nowhere else to go and not much to do, he took the time to hone his skills. It was his grandfather who gave him his first twenty-two rifle, thinking... His grandson would enjoy shooting at tin cans for target practice. But Ed had 
darker things in mind. He used it to hunt rabbits and gophers for the thrill of the kill, and the one thing he was not allowed to shoot at were the birds. And when he ignored that rule, his grandmother often punished him by confiscating the rifle, his most loved possession at that point. But he always found her hiding place and took it back. And when he did, he'd be angrier than ever. Taking out his aggressions on the animals while fantasizing about doing the same thing to the humans in his life. So this went on for about 10 months until he finally gave in to his rage on August 27th, 1964. The way he told it in his 2017 parole hearing, he grabbed his rifle and whistled for his dog to go out hunting. But when he looked back into the kitchen where his grandmother was sitting at the table with his back to him, he couldn't resist the overwhelming urge to pull the trigger. He shot her once in the head and twice in the back. Then he dragged her body into the bedroom. According to Margaret Cheney's book, The Co-Ed Killer, the last thing his grandmother ever said to him as he walked out the door was, you'd better not be shooting the birds again. Ed was 15. His grandfather was out running errands at the time, which gave him time to think how upset the man would be when he found out what happened to his wife. So when he got home, the solution to that was that Ed went outside and shot him dead in the driveway. Later, he would say he shot his grandmother because he wanted to see what it felt like. It made it worse to be on top of a mountain. I was literally on top of a mountain when it happened. And I could sense, I sensed everybody in the world just stopping what they were doing, turning around, saw what I did and are coming to get me. And I knew I was paranoid at that moment. I knew anybody that came up there and gave me a funny look or a fishy eye or quizzical look, I'd have blown their brains out thinking they were coming to get me. And if it had been in a city, I would have been a mass murderer at age 15. I would have killed until they gunned me down. I wouldn't have been able to reason my way out of it. I was scared to death and I was violent. I felt my back hit that wall. I was the rabbit that always ran, that always backed away, always burned his bridges. Suddenly there weren't any more. And my back hit that wall and I came out screaming and kicking and shooting. He turned to his mother for help. With his grandparents' bodies next to him, he called Clarnell and told her what he did and asked what he should do. She told him to call the sheriff and turn himself in, so he did. He was sent to a Tascadero State Hospital for the criminally insane. Doctors diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic and put him on a regimen of medication and therapy, and it worked. He was getting better. The delusions and bloody fantasies were going away, and he thrived in the institutional routine. Now, some reports say he was smart enough to memorize the assessment answers, and that's why they thought he was getting better. And he was even trusted with assessing new patients, while other reports say he did, in fact, legitimately get better with treatment. The truth probably falls somewhere in between. And certainly, if he hadn't been released, eight more people would not have lost their lives to him. Doctors were so impressed with Ed's progress, they allowed him to walk out when he was 21 with the recommendation that he not be left in his mother's care. But it was the judge who had the ultimate authority. I got paroled to my mother. Atascadero decided that I didn't never need to talk to her again at all. Don't give her a Christmas present. Leave her alone. She got her pound of flesh out of you. I wasn't sniveling about my mother to them. I didn't like to hear what they had to say about her. She went to three husbands like a hot knife through butter. When Four months after I was out, I was back into the fantasy bag. My first date was an absolute disaster. It wasn't her fault. You know? And I didn't blame her even then. I'm saying it was a terrible tragedy, but boy, was it, boy, she didn't ever talk to me again. It was awful. It wasn't sexual or grabbing at her. And I was just such a dork taking her to a John Wayne movie in Denny's. It's terrible. I'd never been on a date at 16. That was cool. You know, I'd never been on a date. You know, 
I was locked up since I was 15. But I can't tell her that. Oh, gee, you don't mind me. You know, she kind of got a, hung up on my looks or whatever. You know, I mean, she's a gorgeous young lady, pure class. And she saw something there that I guess wasn't there. And boy, she found out quick. In a later interview, supposedly with a reporter from Cosmopolitan magazine, he's quoted as saying he didn't know whether he wanted to date girls or see their heads on sticks. And his older sister said that in his early teens, he confessed he had a crush on one of his teachers. And when his sisters teased him about kissing her, he told them he would, but only if she was dead first. But in 1969, at 21 years old, Ed Kemper wasn't sure what to do with himself. His murderous fantasies were coming back strong, and he was suddenly in a world he had no idea how to act in. There was a constant war between good and evil raging inside of him. I was raging inside. There was just incredible energies, positive and negative, uh, depending on a mood that would trigger one or the other. And outside, I looked troubled at times. Other times, I looked moody. Uh, Other times, perfectly serene. Not very sane. The conditions of his parole said he had to go to college and generally try to make something of himself. He was self-aware enough to recognize that he thrived in an environment with clear rules and structure, so he thought the police force would be a good fit. But ironically, it wasn't his childhood double murder that made him ineligible. It was his height. At 6'9 and weighing almost 300 pounds, he was too big to join the academy. So instead, he took a job as a road construction flagman with the California Department of Transportation and settled for drinking with the police since he couldn't work with them. Big Ed, as they called him, became a favorite regular at a local cop bar in Santa Cruz called The Jury Room. But back at home, things were very much the way they'd always been between Ed and his mother. Even the neighbors overheard their vicious fights. Oh, why didn't he just move out? Well, he did, as soon as he saved enough money, but he couldn't seem to escape. He says she continued to torment him with constant phone calls and surprise visits, which, again, he said she used as opportunities to ridicule his apartment and lifestyle. And then things got worse. He had a motorcycle, which he bought to feel like he was part of the highway patrol. But instead of living out his fantasy, he got in two accidents— One resulted in a settlement of about $16,000, money he used to buy himself a yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy, which he loved to drive around in for hours. It was on one of those drives that he started to notice a lot of girls hitchhiking, and he remembered overhearing his cop friends at the jury room talk about runaway girls who would go missing only to turn up again later. So the takeaway he got from that was that the cops didn't put too much effort into trying to find those girls. And his big, smart brain started putting two and two together. Homicidal fantasies, these little zapples as he called them, started zinging through his mind when he thought of the things he could do. And if he made it look random enough, he'd never be caught. He started with what you might call catch and release. Somewhere out there are more than 150 girls who got into Ed Kemper's car in the early 1970s, but he let them go. He was training himself how to handle a wide variety of scenarios, and he turned his car into the ideal killing machine, stocking it with plastic bags, ropes, knives, guns, and a blanket under the seats, in the trunk, in the side, in the glove compartment. He even rigged the back doors so they wouldn't open from the inside. When he literally pulled the trigger, he wanted to be ready. 
and at the same time, he was picking up all the information he could from his cop buddies at the jury room bar, asking them how suspects were caught, what kinds of things they looked for, other probing questions. He also watched a lot of detective dramas to learn as much as he could. As he said, I didn't allow myself to fall into any trap. And then in May 1972, he took his first two victims, Marianne Pess and Anita Luchessa. They were roommates at Fresno State, and they were hitchhiking their way up to Stanford, about 45 minutes north. They crossed paths with Ed in Berkeley. He told them he'd happily take them the whole way there, and they hopped into his car. So based on the transcript of his 2017 parole hearing, he said, I pulled my gun out when I had them in a quiet place, and they asked me what I was going to do. And I said, what do you think I'm going to do? I was referring to sex. And they were thinking they didn't want to be thinking death, so I wasn't encouraging that at all. And when they refused to be involved with me sexually, I stated that it could get worse. You know, you could die today. You can end up getting dumped in the ditch. Is that what you want? And they basically were arguing against rape. And naturally, that didn't happen. Instead, Ed forced Anita into the trunk and focused on Marianne. He handcuffed her and he put a plastic bag over her head, trying to suffocate her. But she managed to bite through the bag and breathe. She fought like hell to live, and it didn't fit his plan for the time, but he ended up slashing her throat to kill her. He murdered Anita in the same way. After driving around with them a while, he brought them back to his apartment. His roommate was out for the night, so he had some time to do what he wanted with their bodies. And in 2017, he told the parole board he dismembered them because his arm was still in a cast after his motorcycle accident, and that was the only way he could carry their bodies. Once he had them inside, he washed the blood off their heads and decapitated them so he could look at them the way that they had been in life, two beautiful girls. And then he defiled them over and over before eventually leaving their heads in the mountains around Santa Cruz. Anita's head and body were never found. Why those girls? He fell back into his favorite hobby of driving around, catching and releasing potential victims. The next girl, who wasn't released, was 15-year-old Aiko Ku. She was hitchhiking near the university, and Ed claims he never would have picked her up if he knew she was still in high school. It was September 14, 1972. She was running late for dance class, and she didn't want to wait for the bus. When he had her in the car, he pulled out his gun and showed it to her, but convinced her that he was going to use it on himself, and if she didn't put up a fuss or try and signal for help, then she would make it out alive. 
He says he actually got out of the car and accidentally locked himself out, and she opened the door for him. Like the first two victims, he drove to a secluded spot and tried suffocating her by taping her mouth shut and squeezing her nose closed, but it didn't work, and in the end, he strangled her with her own scarf. He defiled her body, he put her in the trunk, and then he went to the jury room for a few beers with his cop buddies. He talked about opening the trunk in the parking lot of the bar to admire his latest catch as if he was a fisherman and she was the day's trophy. She wasn't a prize he was willing to part with very quickly. The next day, he had a court-ordered appointment with his psychiatrist. He managed to convince the doctor he was completely cured. As far as they knew, he'd done nothing illegal since his release and his therapy mandate was lifted. Ayako's head was in his trunk at the time. Although authorities still had no idea who was behind these disappearances, they warned college girls against getting into a car with anyone without a university sticker. But that was no problem for Ed. His mother worked as an administrative assistant at the university in Santa Cruz, and he had a college parking sticker on his car. He used it to his advantage in twisted ways. He bought himself a 22, went looking for an innocent college girl to shoot and violate. On January 7th, 1973, he came across Cindy Shaw. He shot her, then took her back to his mother's house. By that time, he'd lost his job with the transportation department and without a steady income, he was back at home living with his mother. She was at work, so he delighted in the fact that he could bring Cindy's body into the house, dismember her in the bathtub, and defile her head in his mother's room. When he was finished, he buried her head in the garden facing his mother's room, a sick inside joke because, as he said, she always wanted people to look up to her. He threw the rest of her body over a remote cliff, but it wasn't long before they were found washed up on the beach. About a month later, on February 5th, 1973, he and his mother got into yet another screaming argument, which drove him out of the house and behind the wheel. He headed straight for the campus to find more innocent victims to vent his rage onto. The first girl that's halfway decent that I pick up, I'm going to blow her brains out. That's what he said later. That girl was Rosalind Thorpe. She saw his university sticker and had no qualms about accepting a ride from him. By that time, he was an expert at making people feel safe around him, despite his enormous size. So with Rosalind in the passenger seat, it wasn't hard to pick up a second victim, Allison Liu. She hopped into the back seat, and the three of them set out. But this time, he didn't even pull over before shooting Rosalind in the head and Allison twice in the back seat. He said she was moving around so much, he missed the first time. When they were dead, he pulled over and put their bodies in his trunk and headed back to his mother's house. He claims he went inside, then made an excuse to go back out where he beheaded both girls in his trunk in plain view of anyone that might have passed by. But no one did. He kept their heads in his bedroom so he could defile them as often as he wanted for the next couple of days. And when he was done with them, he disposed of their body parts like he did the other girls. Their murders satisfied his bloodlust for a while, but the following month, it's been reported that he met a girl on a local beach that would later become his fiance. Now, her name has never been released, as far as I could tell, but by the next month, those zapples were building back up inside of him.
Instead, he took a claw hammer to her head, acting out a fantasy he said he had since childhood. He decapitated and defiled her. He ripped out her tongue and vocal cords and tried stuffing them in the garbage disposal. At his trial, he gave the gruesome details on the stand, saying he screamed at her head for an hour, then threw darts at it before ultimately smashing her face in. It was Good Friday on April 20th, 1973. And now that she was gone, he had another fantasy he wanted to act out involving his mother's friend, Sally Hallett. In 2017, when he was describing this murder for the parole board, he said that he swore if he ever got the courage to kill his mother, he was going to take her friend Sally out with her. Why? Well, the answer is just as horrifying and sad as the rest of this story. Apparently, Sally and his mother were planning a grand European vacation the year before, and they were splitting the cost. But at the last minute, Sally backed out, and his mother went by herself. When she got back, she claimed Sally didn't even want to see the pictures or hear stories about the trip. In his words, he tried to be someone she could talk to about it and show off her pictures, but she told him she didn't want his pity and refused to discuss it. As much as he hated his mother for it, he hated Sally, too, for disappointing her, and he vowed he'd make her pay with her life. The next night, after killing his mother, he called her up and asked her to come over for dinner saying he was making a meal as a surprise for his mom. When Sally walked in, he put his arm around her throat and pulled so hard he broke her neck. Then, like he had with his other victims, he defiled her corpse, then shoved her body in a closet. I didn't go hog wild and totally limp. What I'm saying is I found myself doing things in an attempt to make things fit together inside. I was doing sexual probings and things. I mean, in the sense of striking out and reaching out and grabbing and pulling to me but appalled at the sense that it wasn't working. That isn't the way it's supposed to be. It isn't the way I want it. See what I'm saying? And yet I get, during that time, I become engaged to someone who's young and is beautiful and very much the same advantages and very much the same upbringing and Disneyland values. And uh, she's very much the reason I surrender. On Easter Sunday morning, he stole Sally's car and started driving east. Eventually, he abandoned her car at a gas station where he picked up some soda and nodos so he could keep going. He rented another car and drove for 18 hours straight. Exhausted and delirious, he found himself in Pueblo, Colorado, and he picked up a payphone to end his inner struggles once and for all. He called Santa Cruz police to confess, but they knew him as Big Eddie from the jury room, and they thought he was just pranking them. He had to call back a few times and offer details that only the co-ed killer would know before they started to take him seriously. In the end, he told an officer to go by his mother's house, where he would find two bodies. And when they saw what he'd done to them, they came and got him, guns drawn. He went quietly and confessed to all the murders in the car ride back to California. So it's been reported that he also confessed to cannibalizing some of the bodies, but later he recanted that, saying it was just a fabrication by his lawyer to try and support an insanity defense, something that was rejected, by the way. According to the courts, he was absolutely sane. He was found guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder on November 8, 1973. So when asked what he thought his punishment should be, he answered, death by torture, However, the death penalty wasn't an option at that time, so he got eight life sentences. And in all these years, he's never had another infraction or committed another act of violence. 
but he has become a favorite lab rat of the FBI and other law enforcement agencies just because of the depravity of his crimes, his high intelligence, and his off-the-chart self-awareness and willingness to let himself be studied. His relationship with Agent John Douglas was featured in the Netflix series Mindhunter, and even that agent said he was surprised by how much he genuinely liked the man, even as he and his partner, Robert Ressler, were frightened by his ability to switch from a jovial man into a soulless killer. But thanks to those interviews and the interviews they did with other notorious killers, the two agents are credited with forming the Behavioral Science Unit at FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. And many other killers have been caught as a result of what they learned from Kemper and others. And I've got one more fun fact for you. In this parole hearing in 2017, when they asked Ed who he might be willing to live with, and I told you that those boys had offered him his old apartment back, But there are a couple of other girls that he said were really sending him a lot of love letters. One of them was from France. She said that they'd been writing letters back and forth for months. And another one was from Maryland. And apparently she was married to a corrections officer but wanted to leave her husband for Ed Kemper. She even came out to California and visited him for a whole week. What do you think of those kind of women that want to, like, get married to these serial killers? I don't know. I I think you gotta you gotta just take your chances on Match.com or freaking Tinder, ladies. But that's just me. And that's your recap. And if you like getting twice the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to Chris and I to have you subscribe and join us every Wednesday for a new recap. You can also watch the show on YouTube or Facebook every week. And if you would do us the huge favor of leaving a five-star review and comment, it helps us so much to support the show. Thanks again, and until next time, take care.